Hello, listeners. My name is Brian Winston, and I'd like to welcome you to the December 23rd edition of Unity in Christ. Not too long ago, I read a newspaper article about whether or not we should tell the story of Santa Claus to our children. And the article started like this. During the Christmas season, you might think of Santa Claus as the one who makes and delivers presents to children from the North Pole, along with his elves and Rudolph. The disappointment is beyond speech when kids realize that there is no such thing as Santa Claus, a person that hands out gifts to boys and girls who have been good for a year. Because every year, they've had so much excitement and joy waiting to open their gifts from him. I remember my childhood as I was reading this article. Did I really believe in Santa Claus? When I thought about it, I don't think I believed in him because the Santa Claus that I experienced always left me with gifts that I didn't want. So as a kid, I thought that something was wrong with Santa. Other kids got what they wanted from Santa Claus. However, I wondered why he never brought me the presents I wanted. Also, I thought, how was it possible for Santa to deliver all the toys to the boys and girls all over the world in one night? My disappointment of finding out that there was no such thing as Santa was not as severe because I guess my conviction of believing him was not that strong. But when I saw the reaction of kids on YouTube, when they were told that Santa Claus isn't real, it seemed to me that the children were in great shock to find out he wasn't real. There were various reactions from crying kids to angry kids. And when I saw a nine-year-old girl saying she no longer likes Christmas because Santa was fake, I saw an individual whose mind was blown coming to the realization that what she believed in for so long wasn't true. Some say, why should we deprive little children of joy and excitement so early since they will eventually learn that there is no Santa? What do you think? Do you think it's okay to tell your naive children about Santa Claus? I thought so too, but one day a thought came to my mind. When children learn that Santa, who even comes to some church events to give them gifts, is fake and the realization kicks in that what they believe in is false, how confused will they be? When those kids grow up to hear the world speaking to them that they were not created but have evolved over millions of years and even possibly from monkeys and when they hear that God's creation was all false and if they were told by non-believers that creation is a myth, wouldn't our children go through another state of confusion? Oh
What if our children grew up believing in Santa and saw Santa coming to church, handing out presents, and later found out that he wasn't real? What if the world tells our children that Jesus and God are also fake like Santa? How do we explain that to our children? If we say Santa is fake, but God is real, Would our children accept it as fact immediately? Perhaps there might be a possibility that our children will come up to us and say, But you said Santa is real, and he isn't. My friends say God isn't real either. How would we respond to that? That is why my wife and I agree to tell our children since they were little, that Santa is not real. Of course, my wife did not like the idea at first. She thought it would be okay for the kids to have some fun fantasies. However, I told her that I did not like to cover up the lie with fantasies. I did not want to teach my children the story about Santa in how he doesn't give gifts to crying or naughty children. I persuaded my wife that we ought to commemorate the coming of the Holy Son of God who came to give his life for us and how we should also explain his precious grace of calling us righteous by faith alone. We should teach our children this rather than the mythical Santa who only gives presents to those who have been good. My wife agreed, and we decided to teach what we ought to teach our children on Christmas, the story of Jesus. We ought to teach our children that it is not Santa Claus, but God the Father that gave us the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. God sent His Son to save us sinners from death. And his son obeyed him until his death on the cross. We are all saved from our sins, and by believing in Jesus, 
we became the children of God and received eternal life. What gift can be greater than this? What gift can we give to others? Thankfully, kids understand that the true gift from God should not be hidden by the gift that Santa brings. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Christmas Eve. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Let me add my welcome and Merry Christmas tonight. Joy it is to celebrate Christmas Eve with you. You know, we're, we're singing that song and I was, I was thinking... That really is the question. And you think about it, around which. So we're just singing, all right? That was, you know, if we're not careful, that can just be 
casual Christmas song time, but we're singing about the question around which all of history revolves. Who is this? What child is this? We're talking history here. So we've not gathered together tonight to retell a fairy tale or an imaginary story. Talking about, we're remembering, we're celebrating in this room tonight a real event that happened in real history in a city about 5,703 miles away from where we're sitting tonight. We're talking about an event that literally divides history in half. You had a front half of world history leading up to that point that was all pointing to that point, to that event. I mean, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates man and woman. Creation of the first man and the first woman. Immediately, that man and that woman do what every single one of us in this room has done, turns away from God. I'm talking about the youngest in this room. I'm talking about a baby born yesterday, born with a heart that is turned away from God. And it plays out different in all of our lives. It looks, looks one way in my life. It looks one way in your life. It plays out in all kinds of self-indulgence. and other ways, it plays out in all kinds of self-righteousness. We, we turn aside to ourselves away from God. That's the first man, first woman do that. And as soon as they do that, as soon as they do that, the God who created them promises that one day a son is going to be born from a woman who, who is going to defeat sin once and for all. There was a promise at the very beginning and a promise that continued all throughout the first two-thirds of the Bible, this first half of history, over generations, over centuries, over and over and over again, God promised that a son was coming. And the promise that we're looking at tonight is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. So Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Let's read them out loud together. This was a promise that was given a little over 700 years before that point in time that we're celebrating tonight, Christmas, when, when Christ was born. This promise was given. Let's read it out loud together. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 700 years before Jesus came. During a time in which the People of God, the northern kingdom of Israel, were being attacked by Assyria, embroiled in war. It's, it's hard for us to imagine, so we've got war on terror going on. It's kind of the closest thing 
In our context today, when we think of war, some of you remember, lived through, even fought in Vietnam War, Korean War, even going back to world wars in the first half of the 20th century. And the atmosphere that surrounds war. Like, just, just imagine, imagine living in Syria right now. There's, there's nothing stable in your life. You don't know what's about to happen. Imagine being right now in South Sudan. So my first trip to Sudan back in, in 2000, this was before South Sudan had even become a country. This is wartime in Sudan. They'd been embroiled in war for 20 years. And the village I'm in, I mean, helicopter gunship had just come through and ravaged these villages in all kinds of different ways that we won't even go into. Just horrible things. And they'd lived through that. And then came out of that Suppose peace, we've got a new country. And now, tonight, while we're sitting here in Birmingham, Alabama, those same men and women are in South Sudan on the verge of virtual civil war. So I say that just to maybe give us a little bit of context behind when these words were written, the instability that was around. And really, that's the whole picture we have of this first half of history instabilities, wars over and over, over again. Different leaders provoking different wars. In fact, I want to get some help to, to maybe illustrate this a bit. If you'd be willing to come up here on stage, then raise your hand where you are. You're going to come up here and, and help me out. So all ages, all right. Come on, guys. Y'all stand in a line. So y'all just kind of come over here and get in line. Here we go. You're going to spread out a little bit. Y'all are looking great in your Christmas dresses. Love it. All right. Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoahaz. Why don't you three hold Zedekiah together? All right. So what you've got standing in front of you are 10 slash 12 southern kings of the southern kingdom of Israel, which was known as Judah. And so what happened, we'll start down here in in the very beginning with, I mean, we're all out of order. Oh, no. So, all right, Rehoboam, you were number one, okay? You were the first king in Judah. You were Solomon's son. Solomon had reigned after Saul, David, then Solomon. Rehoboam comes on the stage. But the problem is, Rehoboam, you didn't get along with other people very well. In fact, he split the people of God into two kingdoms, like a civil war, northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, because you couldn't get along with your brother Jeroboam. Do you have any siblings? Yes. Yes? Do you get along with your siblings? Most of the time. Well, that's good. Is there ever civil war in your house? Sometimes. Oh, okay. Well, well, maybe that will end tonight. One day, peace will come. All right. So, Rehoboam, what I want to ask you to do is is I want you to turn around your poster and show that you were clearly not the king who was going to bring peace and then have a seat right where you are. All right. Thank you, Rehoboam. Y'all give it up for Rehoboam. All right. Now we got Abijam. Okay. Abijam comes on the stage right after Rehoboam, and we're thinking, okay, maybe we can unite this thing together. But Abijam... You didn't do a very good job bringing people together. You caused even greater war. And so turn yours over, and you're going to have a seat. Give it up for Abishab. 
Yeah, give it up for those who are playing these characters. We're really not giving it up for these kings because they were horrible in biblical history. All right, there's Asa. Okay, Asa, you came on the scene and you also led the people of God into war. And so it was sad time. And in the end of your life, you actually started to have foot problems and disease in your foot. Have you ever had disease in your foot? Oh, okay. Why don't we all, so that she doesn't feel alone, anybody else ever had disease in their foot? It's just gross. Uh, so many diseased feet in the room. So you died with a disease in your foot, and that was the end. Turn yours around. There we go. Okay, and have a seat, Asa. Okay. All right, Jehoram standing right here. Okay, Jehoram, you, you did something that was not very good at all. When, <laughs> that's funny. Is this your brother right here? Yes. Well, you're not going to like this news. Jehoram didn't like his brothers, and so he hurt all of his brothers. That wasn't very good. <laughs> you all see this face. Jehoram, are you kind to your brothers? Yes. Good. Well, Jehoram wasn't, but you are, and we're thankful for that. Jehoram hurt all his brothers in order to ascend to the throne, and in the process of sinning in that way, he showed that he was clearly not the king who was going to bring peace. So turn yours around and have a seat. There we go. Okay, next was Joash. How old are you? Uh, seven. Do you know how old Joash was when he became king? Guess. 32? <laughs> That's a good guess. But no, he was seven. Can you believe that? So let me just ask the question. If you were, okay, it's kind of tough to imagine. If you were president of the United States at seven, what is the first thing you would do as president? Swim in the swimming pool at the White House. You'd swim in the swimming pool at the White House. Well, that's good. There's all kinds of potential jokes that are running through my head that I'm not going to verbalize. Joash, as, as promising as a seven-year-old king might seem, you didn't end up bringing peace either. So turn yours over and have a seat. All right. Thank you, Joash. All right. Uzziah. Sweet Uzziah. Uzziah became king when he was 16 years old. Now, how old are you? Four. Four. Do you know what happens when you turn 16 in our country? You get to drive a car. Have you ever driven a car? No. No? Do you think your mom and dad are going to let you drive when you're 16? Yes. <laughs> I think daddy just said no. Uh, so I'll let you guys talk about that. But we get driver's licenses here when we turn 16. Uzziah became king, and he reigned for 52 years. And you did a lot of great things when you were king, but the only problem is during the end of your life, during the end of Uzziah's life, he got proud, and he turned away from God, and he didn't bring the peace that they were looking for. So he, turn yours around, did not bring peace. Have a seat. Thank you, Uzziah. All right, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was also a really good king for many, and some of these other guys were pretty rough. You were really sweet. Hezekiah did a lot of good things, and near the end of his life, he was gotten really sick. Have you ever gotten sick before? Yes. Do you like being sick? No. No. Well, Hezekiah, when he got sick, he got word that he was going to die. And so what he did was he prayed, and God said, I'm going to give you some extra life. And God gave him 15 extra years of life. 
But during that 15 years of life, he used it to turn away from God and to lead the people of God to be vulnerable to other countries. And so Hezekiah got sick that led, in a way that then led him to turn away from God. And he also didn't bring the peace that the people of God were looking for. Turn it around. Thank you, Hezekiah. All right. Joe, how old are you? Eight. This is incredible. Do you know how old Josiah was when he became king? Eight. Very good. He was eight years old. Like I didn't, this is the sovereignty of God that these children would get these. So what would you do if you were king of a country? First thing you would do. Well, Josiah did a lot of great things, but he also, near the end of his life, turned away from God, and so he didn't bring the peace that people were looking for. Turn yours over and have a seat. Thank you, Josiah. Jehoahaz. Do you know how long Jehoahaz was king? No. Jehoahaz was king for three months. He's the shortest reigning king in the whole Bible. How would that make you feel if you were the shortest reigning king in the whole Bible? Bad. Bad. Well, Jehoahaz was the shortest reigning king in the Bible because he was bad. And that's part of why he was a short reigning king. And so clearly in that three months, he didn't bring the peace either that God's people were looking for. Thank you, Jehoahaz. And then, finally, Zedekiah was, what's your name, sweetie? Julia. Julia, you're very sweet. Zedekiah was the very last king in Judah. And Babylon was overtaking Jerusalem during that time and ended up destroying Jerusalem. And Zedekiah was not able to stop it. And as a result, the people of God were taken into exile. And Zedekiah was not the king that the people of God were looking for. All right, would you give it up for all these guys? You know, we, we laugh and we... We, we play a bit with that. But the picture is, if you can only imagine, I mean, each one of these kings, Uzziah, is representing 52 years. For many of us, that's most of a lifetime. And you're hoping, you're longing for peace, and yet there's still war all around you. And it's during that time, in fact, Isaiah chapter 6, just a couple of verses before, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah had one of these visions that he writes about in the book that we have in the Bible from his name. Over and over and over again, in the first half of world history, you've got leaders who came on the scene who certainly had great promises and great prospects, but did not come through in bringing peace. So that's the first half of world history. Fast forward to the second half of world history. Let me get a little bit more help. I want to put some leaders up on the screen, and I want to see if you can recognize who they are. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask a child to raise your hand, and then if you can't guess who it is, then your mom or dad or parent near you, an adult near you, has to try to guess who it is, okay? So you look at this first one on the screen and see if you can guess who this is. All right, do you know who it is? Here we go, come over here. Who do you think that is? Cleopatra. Very good. So Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of ancient Egypt, for many, many years, in history, the Egyptians reigned through these pharaohs, through these leaders, and Cleopatra was the last one. And yet, at the end of her life, still embroiled in war and conflict with nations and peoples around her. Look at the next one. All right, do you know who it is? Who do you think that is? A statue. I can take that. That's good. All right, anybody got a guess on who is the statue of? Caesar. 
Caesar? That is a great guess, but it's not Caesar. So, let's see. What do you think? That was my guess. Oh, Nero? No. Anybody? Throw out a guess. That's Constantine the Great. Constantine the Great. So, among Roman emperors, was very powerful, led through civil war, was actually the first Roman emperor to declare religious tolerance in Rome, which paved the way for the legalization of Christianity, of Christians to gather together for worship. But when he died, still embroiled in civil war all around him. Look at this next one. All right, who knows who that is? Anybody know who that is? All right, who do you think that is? Confucius. Confucius, no. So, who is it? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Anybody know? Yell it out. Oh, somebody got it. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, leader of the Mongol Empire. So, 11th, 12th, 13th century. Became basically the father of Mongolia through a variety of very evil ways. Went about conquering pretty much all of Eurasia. Yet the end of his rule, still embroiled in conflict all around him. Look at this next one. You know who that is? Washington. George Washington. Good job, buddy. Our first president, leader of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, and the father of our country, who yet, when he finished office, still left a country that was still not immune from battle around him, leading to another president. Who's that? Ben Franklin. Um, no, I think your sister. Yeah, your sister got that one. All right. There we go. Good job, sweet. Sterling, you got to learn from her, man. So there's Abraham Lincoln, an incredible leader, yet he led in one of the times of greatest military moral conflict in our country during the Civil War. Look at the next one. And was assassinated at the end of it with war still raging around. Who knows who this is? Nelson Mandela. Very good. Nelson Mandela, the first black president of South Africa. Not just that, the first elected president of South Africa. Elected and brought the end of, or, or reforms to end apartheid, which was basically the racial segregation of South Africa. But anyone who has been to South Africa knows that there are still many, many struggles in South Africa that remain. You know, you look at all of these leaders in the second half of history, and some of them very good. Some of them very evil. And yet all of them, when they died, when they finished their rule and their reign, left behind a world that was full of turmoil and conflict and war. And so in light of this picture of history, before and after, in light of this promise in Isaiah chapter 9, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Did you hear that? This is the promise of a governor, a king, a ruler, a leader whose government will never end, whose kingdom will be upheld forever, and a peace that will never, ever fade, a peace. And so there's a reason why. This day that we celebrate 2,000 years ago, when a baby was born, it was announced by an angel in heaven Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Immediately after that angel says that, a chorus of angels joins in, multitudes of them. And what do they say? Glory to God in the highest and peace 
on earth among those with whom God is pleased. Read that with me. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Feel the weight of this. In light of Isaiah 9, in light of all of history, listen to this announcement, this proclamation, this declaration on the night Jesus was born. Read this with me. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you see it? Luke 2, fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, a child has been born. A son has been given. And in the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The government will rest on his shoulders, not on Rehoboam's, not on Uzziah's, not on Hezekiah's, not on Zedekiah's. And Praise be to God, the reign of the world does not rest on the shoulders of Cleopatra or Constantine, even as great a leaders as Margaret Thatcher or Nelson Mandela or George Washington. Praise be to God that the rule and reign of the world rests on the shoulders of Jesus the Christ. The king, just think about it, the king of the world has come into the world. One who has rule and reign forever over everything. He's, he's come into the world. Why has he come into the world? Two reasons in Luke chapter 2 verse 14. One, he's come to bring peace to us. Peace in a world. So we live in a world of sorrow and sin and suffering with which we are all familiar. Again, in different ways. We've walked through different things in this room. We live in a world where we know things are not as they should be. In our lives, in our families, in our country, among the nations in the world, we are desperately in need of peace. First and foremost, peace with God. You and I, because we've sinned against God, every single one of us, from the youngest in this room to the oldest in this room, all of us alienated from God, separated from God, enemies of God, James chapter 4 says, All of us have run away from God to ourselves. And the beauty of Christmas, this is not just a holiday to sing songs and wrap gifts and carry out traditions. This is celebration of reality that God has come in pursuit of sinners. He's come to you and me. He's come to us. Why? To bring peace to us, to make it possible for you right where you're sitting to have peace with God. You, in all your sin, you say, how is that possible? Here's how. What sets this this king apart from every other king, what sets this leader apart from every other leader, he lived a life that none of us could live. A life of perfect, total obedience to God. Never once sinning, never once falling. He lived a life we could never live, and then he died the death that we deserve to die. He came to die on a cross. Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20 says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus came to make it possible for you and I, alienated from God, to be restored, reconciled, to God, and he did it by dying on the cross for your sins, for my sins. And then, and then he did what none of these other kings, none of these other leaders have ever done, could ever do. He conquered the enemy we could not conquer. He rose from the dead. 
he rose from the dead. Maybe you didn't hear me. Just think about it. Jesus lived among us, born as we are, and then died, like stopped breathing, not just for a few minutes, for three days, put in a tomb, and then three days later, he's walking around again. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered the enemy. We can never conquer. He's lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die, conquered the enemy we could not conquer, so that by faith in him, by trusting in him, any person in this room, every person in this room who trusts in him can be reconciled to God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we, therefore we have been, can be justified, and in the process have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's come so that you, right where you're sitting, can be at peace with God. And then think about where that just flows. Everything flows from that. It flows into peace within your soul. So without a show of hands, how many of you have ever been haunted by guilt? How many of your souls have ever been troubled by worry and anxiety? How many of you have ever wrestled with, with confusion, just restlessness in this world? And God has sent His Son to make it possible for peace to be a reality in your soul. Free from all your guilt. Free from all anxiety and worry. Rest amidst a restless world. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything. Don't have anxiety about nothing. And everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace within your soul. Peace with others around you. Christmas, obviously a time where many people get together with families, which can always be a joyful occasion, but can sometimes be an awkward occasion. Let's just be honest. But it's, it's not uncommon for there to be some awkwardness in family relationships, some tension. And if I could just... Maybe bring a word there from the Lord that he came to bring peace with each other. It comes through God so that, so follow this, when you realize that the God of the universe has loved you despite your weaknesses and your sins against him, that no matter how much that friend or family member has offended you, hurt you, the overflow of peace with God, the overflow of forgiveness from God is forgiveness of that family member. The overflow of peace from God is pursuing peace to the best we can. Romans chapter 12, do your best to live at peace with everyone. If I could just encourage you on that level, not to let the next day or two or three go by, the next week go by with anybody in your family or around you in your life where there's lack of peace. And I, I'm not presuming to know all the hurt that's behind that lack of peace, but I would just encourage you just as God has gone to great lengths to bring about peace with you, would you go to great lengths to bring about peace with the people around you? He came to bring peace with him, within our soul, with each other, ultimately in the world. You say, well, Jesus came and there's still wars now. Oh, but Jesus came and he conquered. He conquered sin and death. He rose from the dead and he promised he promised his disciples before he went to the cross, John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome this world. 
And there is coming a day, we know the end of the story. We got the first half of history and the second half of history. And at the end of the second half, there's coming a day when the God of peace will send his son back for all who trusted in him. He will bring them into his presence where they will live at peace with him, at peace with each other for all of eternity. He came to bring peace to us. And so remember Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus has come to bring peace to us and he's come to bring praise to God. Peace in this world ultimately be a result of praise to God in this world. Which means, now follow this, I just want to bring this to a close right where you're sitting. The key to peace in your life is praise to this God. The peace of God comes through the praise of God. It's when God and Christ are supreme in our hearts follow this. It's not when God and Christ are a part of our religious routine. Like religious routine doesn't bring peace. Casual religion doesn't bring peace. We're not just talking about religious. We're talking about a heart that has confessed Jesus as King and Lord over and above everyone, everything in all of history. And when you come to that point, you see that Jesus has died the death you deserve to die. He's conquered sin and death. And you put your heart, your trust, your hope totally in him. Then the pathway is laid. Peace with God, a reality. Peace within your soul, a reality. The power to pursue peace with others around you in hope of one day peace, peace with God in eternity. And so on this Christmas Eve, more than anything, my prayer for every single person in this room is that you would know this peace. And I, I ask you tonight, like, is the praise of God primary in your heart? Have you put your hope, your trust, your life in the hands of the Lordship, the reign and the rule of this King? And if you've not, then I want to invite you to, to do that tonight. To turn from yourself to turn from looking to anyone or anything else in this world and to look to Christ alone as the only way to have peace with God and ultimately bring glory to God.
how you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following this program is the questions from the Bible program series. Hello, everyone. This is Susan Holtgrew, your host for the program Questions from the Bible. It seems it was just yesterday we were celebrating the new year of 2017, but it is already mid-December, and 2018 is now around the corner. I wonder if you all have kept any of the resolutions that you prayed and planned for this year. Whatever those plans were, bringing them to a good and satisfactory closure will be just as important as when you began. Similarly, it is important and not so easy to persevere and hold on to God until the end of our spiritual war. Satan's sabotage is ever-present, and our sins and weaknesses become revealed during our battles. In relation to these thoughts, I recall a story from the Bible where someone was able to persevere from the start of his spiritual war until the end and emerge victorious. The story that I speak of is the rebuilding of the fallen city wall of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah. Through all the hardship and obstacles, Nehemiah was able to complete the rebuilding of the city wall in the end. In the moment before the difficult completion, Nehemiah asks a question. For our questions from the Bible program today, we will look at Nehemiah's question from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6, verse 11. Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? Nehemiah led the third wave of exiles returning to Israel. After 70 years of exile, the Israelites who were taken to Babylon returned to the land of Judah by the decree of the Persian king Cyrus. The return happened in three waves, and during the first wave, Zerubbabel led the rebuilding of the fallen temple of Jerusalem. In the second wave with Ezra, spiritual reform occurred with focus on the Word. With the rebuilding of the temple and revival through the Word, Israel seemed to be undergoing full restoration, but the people were still insecure and apprehensive. The fallen city wall and burnt gates left them completely defenseless if enemies attacked. Hearing of the situation, Nehemiah wept and mourned and fasted and prayed before God. In his prayer from Nehemiah chapter 1, he does not ask God for a speedy rebuilding of the city wall, but he comes before God to first repent the sins of all of Israel. He confesses the sins that the people of Israel did not keep God's commandments and asks for God's mercy. Seeing the ordeal of the people of Israel, he felt the dire need to rebuild the city wall and also knew that this was not something that could be done by people's strength alone, but with God's guidance. This is why he confessed the sins of Israel first and went forth before God. The rebuilding of the city wall and gates of Jerusalem began 
with Nehemiah's fasting and prayer. As cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, he sought permission to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and return to Jerusalem with the people of Israel. However, once he arrived in Jerusalem, he was faced with many hardships. First, there were those people who tried to hinder the rebuilding of the city wall. There was Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, Jeshem the Arab, along with others, all foreigners. They mocked, insulted, and threatened the Israelites preparing to rebuild the wall and continuously hindered the process. In the Bible, their reactions were recorded when they heard of the rebuilding through Nehemiah and whenever they saw the progress of the reconstruction. It says they became furious and anxious. They were afraid and did not like the idea that Israel would recover and prosper. So they continuously impeded the rebuilding, but each time Nehemiah did not concede or give up. He relied upon God and focused on rebuilding of the wall while encouraging the people of Israel. However, the hardships that he faced were not just from external sources. There were internal hardships as well. With the famine, some poor Israelites borrowed money from the rich and had their land or homes repossessed or were sold as slaves due to high interest rates. Nehemiah heard the pleas of the poor and reprimanded the nobles and officials for exacting usury, commanding that the possessions and money be returned. As the city wall neared completion, after persevering and overcoming such obstacles and hardship, Nehemiah is faced with another predicament. This time, Tobiah and Sanballat bribed false prophets to tell Nehemiah false prophecies. In verse 10, Nehemiah is told, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. Hearing this, Nehemiah asks, Should a man like me flee, and could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Here, the temple means the inner sanctuary where only the priest may enter. Nehemiah is declaring that he will not commit a sin by entering the inner sanctuary when he is not a priest. In the following verses of chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Nehemiah realizes that this is a false prophecy against him, trying to scare him into entering the inner sanctuary and committing sin with the purpose of slandering him. Even though Nehemiah was near the completion of the city wall, he did not become spiritually lazy and was able to differentiate Satan's snare and stand firm. And in the following verse 15, the wall is completed. Don't you feel as if you have just seen a movie? It is suspenseful with all the threats and obstacles from the enemy, but the main character is able to complete his given mission in the end. Near the end, the final predicament and the scene where Nehemiah asks the question, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? Is the climax of the story. This is not a movie or any fictional story, but a real event recorded in the Bible. Who would be the most fearful of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, strengthening of the country of Israel, 
prospering through the word and recovery of the people of God. Wouldn't it be Satan? Satan persistently laid barriers to the reconstruction. Even to the end, he did not quit and tried to scare Nehemiah into committing sin. This was spiritual war. Similarly, can you think of a particular someone who won the spiritual war and was a prime example of completing his given mission? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus did not receive the threat of false prophecy of, they are coming to kill you, like Nehemiah did. Jesus truly was scorned and mocked as he was dying on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39 to 43, shows the words people used to mock Jesus on the cross. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others, and he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, endured such scorn and mockery and died on the cross. He completed his purpose of coming to this earth until the very end. It is because Jesus has already won the spiritual war that we can trust in him and fight our spiritual war. Like Nehemiah and like Jesus Christ, we can also complete the mission given to us. At this moment of bringing another year to a close, I pray that you and I will fight our spiritual war to the end and be able to complete our given mission. That's it for questions from the Bible for today and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, and God bless you.
Remember the story of the nine-year-old girl who became angry and hated Christmas because Santa was not real? I thought again about what the meaning of true Christmas is and remembered Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God did not leave those who were living as slaves of sin and those who were living in darkness not to know how to deal with their sin or to deal with the fact that they were bound to receive punishment of death forever. God could have left them as they were, however he didn't. Although it would be within God's righteousness to leave them as they were, God showed his love. God sent a great light to those who were in darkness, and a great light shined upon them. God broke the yoke that bound them and broke the staff that struck them. How was this accomplished? Through the baby, through the son who came to earth with God's power on his shoulder. And what is his name? Wonderful. He does marvelous things. Counselor. He is an advisor who helps us. Almighty God, God who shows his power that has no limit. Everlasting Father, the beginning and the end belong to him. He is everlasting. Prince of Peace, True Peace, the one who will reconcile us and bring peace to the hostile relationship between God and us. It is Jesus Christ. What we have to teach our children 
is Jesus Christ, the true gift from God. And Christmas gifts should not hide the true meaning of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will deliver the life of Jesus Christ as your gift to others, and that we will share the Christ who is truth to the next generation. I wish that we will all share only the truth this week. This ends today's program. I thank you for joining me, and I will see you again next week. Merry Christmas. Thank you.